This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots and Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. It's the day before the budget and Rishi Sunak has found himself in trouble, not just with Labour, who are so far distinctly unimpressed if we take out Andy Byrne and the Metro Mayor, who likes some of what has been announced um, when it involves money for his area, but in the form of the House of Commons Speaker. Isabel, what happened yesterday? So the Speaker has complained again today, but also complained yesterday about the number of announcements that are being made in the media before the budget rather than in the House of Commons. And he's been getting increasingly agitated about the way in which ministers are either using Downing Street press briefings or the press uh, to announce things and then later turning up in the House of Commons to sort of just seal the deal with MPs, essentially. And he's been threatening more urgent questions, which seems to be a consequence that ministers are quite happy to take because they've continued to announce more policies in the media in the run-up to the budget, and they continue to send out junior ministers to answer these urgent questions, rather than, obviously, summoning the Chancellor and so on. And so I think this is something that we've seen for a very long time, which is pre-briefing of the budget in one way or another. It's really just part of good media management. I think a lot of spinners would say that you don't want to leave all your announcements until budget day because some of the good ones will get overshadowed by something bad or some of the smaller but still good announcements will get overshadowed by the big rabbit that the Chancellor produces if indeed he is producing a rabbit on budget day. But the problem is is that they've been much more explicit in their announcing this year rather than uh, just sort of subtly briefing that this is expected to happen and I don't think the speaker would be as angry about it if he hadn't got worked up last week about the coronavirus briefing which was held in Downing Street and then the next day there was a statement in the house uh, not by health secretary Sajid Javid but by his junior minister vaccines minister Maggie Throop who, who isn't in the cabinet so the speaker got very upset then and has just been getting increasingly angry about uh, what he sees as the callous disregard of parliament. Is this a serious problem for the Chancellor, James, or is it simply that you have an angry speaker? Is this going to have a a noticeable impact, which makes it harder for Rishi Sunak to do his job? Well, angry speakers can make life more more difficult for the government. I mean, you you, and I I don't think Lindsay Hall is ever going to go down the John Burko route of inventing procedure to make life hard for the government but they can summon ministers more they can grant you cues they can be more sympathetic to kind of points of order made by the opposition and the like i think i would say three things quickly first of all we should admit that as journalists we are obviously all in favor of announcements you know coming out beforehand and then the other two things i would say about the budget specifically i i think as isabel said This is far from the first time this has happened in all the time that I have been covering politics for Spectator. So what, that's now, what, 15 years? This has been a a regular pattern. I think what is different this time round, and this raises, I think, actually an interesting question, it has been more transparent. The Treasury have sent out press releases, which did happen before, but not 
on such frequency rather than certain journalists who everyone knows have very good sources writing stories and everyone being like well that's clearly nailed on for the budget there's also obviously a tension between transparency in terms of the house of commons and transparency in terms of the press i think one of the other things that is different is we used to after budgets go away and everyone used to try and work out what they mean and until the ifs pronounced the next day at lunchtime there was there was a lack of certainty about what lots of budget announcements means that process has been short-circuited by the obr because the obr's big blue book on the budget comes out straight afterwards it, it is much harder for chancellors to get away with the kind of sleight of hand that gordon brown tried to pull off when he for example announced a 2p cut in the basic rate of income tax but paid for by abolishing the 10p rate of tax so i think i think there are tensions there. I think that the government's relations with the Speaker have undoubtedly deteriorated. And I think that the government would say, well, look, on COVID, we're trying to communicate to the public. This is about public behaviour. But I think the Speaker's view is, hang on a second, you you, you should be being held to account in the House of Commons. I suspect that from now on that you will see ministers kept at the dispatch box for longer. There'll be less worries about letting sessions run long you know there were times when John Burko kept uh, David Cameron and Theresa May going for three and a half hours or so I think ministers should expect to get a lot more of that I mean Lindsay Hall is as you could see today kind of seriously crossed when he basically said it's your job to come to the Chamber of House Commons not to appear on Sky News and say all this stuff. Isabel when it comes to the budget we don't have much time now to go to the budget and the spending review so it's cruel in a way to ask you what's going to be in it. You're going to do it anyway right? (laughs) Well, Well we've had so many announcements there's things we can talk around when it comes to i suppose what the government wants to talk about today uh, we're hearing about the public sector pay freeze going and we're also hearing about the national living wage but yet i think if we look read between the lines it seems at least from education that might be somewhere where it at least isn't as generous as education figures have been calling for yeah so the view in the treasury is that enough has been spent on education basically and that a lot of the issues left over from the pandemic and indeed before the pandemic uh, won't be fixed just by throwing more money at the problem. Now uh, this would be an easier argument to make had the man the government appointed to Uh, review education catch-up after the pandemic. So Kevin Collins not quit saying that the government wasn't giving enough money to education. So uh, the person who they trusted to examine this issue, examined the issue and suggested that more money was needed, which, you know, ministers might say, well, it's just a typical example of someone being captured by the establishment of that sector, blah, blah, blah. But it is more difficult politically for them to make that argument. And I think also there has been less attention paid to some of the sort of niche issues uh, within education, within those who are left behind. So it's not just that obviously all pupils have have had a difficult 18 months. There's uh, thousands of children who who are missing from school registers after the pandemic, something that I cover on a different podcast called Aftershock, which we've just released on the Spectator podcast. All good podcast stores. All good podcast apps and some bad ones as well. But there are lots of little issues that that do need to be sorted out that, that don't seem to be being discussed and I think may come more to the fore in the weeks after the budget and the spending review 
if education is the big loser from this. There's also the extra funding for the NHS, which was also announced uh, ahead of the budget. But it's interesting if you talk to people who've actually looked at the detail on this. I think Paul Johnson from the IFS described it as being an incomprehensible announcement and that it wasn't actually clear how much of this £6 billion that the Chancellor says he's announcing is, is actually new money. And James, I think if we're, I suppose, trying to look ahead to where the Chancellor could have problems tomorrow, uh, when you look, for example, at the public sector pay freeze, there seems to be a suggestion that when it, when that, with that going, money needs to be find, found from departments for that. And, but despite talk earlier on that there could be cuts to departments we're expecting to probably hear that you know every department in in real terms is going up so where's the gray area there do you think we're going to be hearing about you know what has to go to make those numbers add up even if overall it's going up no because i think the treasury is playing one of its favorite games which is to throw the problems back to the departments themselves you know so basically they say all right well the salary review body have recommended for example that prison officers should be paid more well ministry of justice i suggest that you find some money for that from within your own budget that that has always been a a, a kind of classic down the years treasury approach to to these questions I, i think tomorrow is very interesting because um, a kind of point that I bang on about relentlessly, right, which is the, the, the government's response to COVID was, was akin to a war. Now, after you have such a mobilisation of a state, the state very rarely returns to its previous size, and certainly not in the 20th century. You know, World War I, you have a much bigger state after that, you know, unemployment insurance is extended, uh, you have the government fixing the wages of agricultural workers, dabbling in rent control after World War II, you have obviously the creation of the NHS that, that Isabel's writing a book about, uh, you have yeah, the Atlee era You're now. creating Isabel for the creation of the NHS for a second there. Our listeners missed the gesturing. Um, um, uh, The industrial nationalisations of the Atlee era. And so I think the interesting thing about tomorrow is, and I think if you look at the the rise in in money being spent on NHS and social care, this ageing population, which will demand more money to be spent on their health care and their care in old age, how do you get the state back to anything like the size it was pre the pandemic. It's worth remembering that in the, in the last year, the state was over 50% of GDP for the first time since 1945-6. So how do you do that? I think that is the really interesting question. And does this Tory party have the stomach for that challenge? Especially given, you know, all of its other priorities. You know, for example, you know, levelling up is obviously something that is going to cost money. And so what happens then? I mean, this is the interesting question. I mean, the interesting question to watch about the Tory party's reaction to it is the Tory party's reaction, well, there should have been more money for education. Why aren't we... Uh, something that, that, that Richard Sunak made clear in his, his interview with you and Tommy Newton Dunn that he wasn't going to do. Why aren't we funding the extension of the school day so schools all stay open as, until 5pm as the Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza, normally a great Tory favourite, ha- has suggested should happen? Or is the Tory reaction gulp the state is still very large i mean that that is one of the interesting questions you know which way does the tory party want to jump finally isabel talk to me about sewage can you tell us did tory mps vote to put sewage in water so there's been this big row on social media over the past few days and it's worth clarifying that uh, for a very long time water companies have been dumping sewage into rivers 
and the sea. Uh, I am one of those very annoying outdoor swimmers and I follow an account on Twitter called at Thames Poo, which tells me when Thames water is pumping storm water overflows into the Thames and it's a warning for swimmers not to go swimming in the Thames. So this isn't anything new. But what happened last week was that there was an amendment to the Environment Bill, which would have legally forced water companies to take all reasonable steps to stop pumping stormwater outflows into rivers. The government opposed this because they say it would have cost a lot of money, it focused too much on storm outflows as opposed to other sewage outflows, and it would have damaged water companies' business. Now, at the time, Tory MPs didn't really notice what was going on. Most of them did what pretty much all MPs do during these votes Uh, and they just look at the text message they have from the whips telling them which lobby to go into they voted against it and then suddenly the shit hit the fan on social media to put it mildly and they've spent all weekend firstly trying to work out what it was that they voted against um, which is is not a great illustration of how well um, our parliament works and then trying to justify their decision to allow, as it's being uh, characterised, allow water companies to carry on dumping sewage into rivers and the seas. And they came up with this figure, which I think was was briefed to Tory MPs in in a massive panic of £600 billion that it would cost to stop this from happening, which is made up. And we know it's made up because the legislation that they've been voting on gives requires the government to come up with a figure. So the legislation explicitly states that there isn't a figure for the government to offer on how much this would cost. It would cost a lot of money because, uh, and I've learned a lot about sewage in the past few days, there are three different types of sewage pipes. There are foul water pipes, there are surface water pipes, and there are combination pipes which combine the foul water, the sewage, with the water that runs off the roads. And these are the pipes that are the problems. There are around 200,000 kilometres of these combined pipes. And when we have a lot of rainfall, these pipes get very full. And either the water companies don't do anything about it and then you get poo on the streets or the water companies pump it into rivers or streams. That's basically what has happened. There's going to be a vote again in the Lords and the Commons on this amendment. I think it's fair to say that the government have lost this battle in one way or the other. This is a bit like the privatisation of the forests 10 years ago when actually the forests weren't being sold off and they were commercial forests that were being grown to be chopped down anyway rather than lovely broadleaf woodlands. But once something becomes a a short line on social media which is voted in favour of dumping sewage, it's very difficult to um, row back from that. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.